Welcome to our theological equipping class. Uh, I'm using my computer because my notes are so scattered. I have crazy writing all over the side, and this is a little bit less, uh, less crazy, so to keep me organized. Um, but today we are talking about the presence of God, this biblical theme uh, of the presence of God. And this was a really hard teaching to prepare for because there is a ton of information that I could share with you. And so when I first finished my teaching and finished my outline, you know, you prepare everything and you're like, okay, great. It looks great. And it was two hours long. And so uh, cutting it down was, it's really sad because you feel like you've like, you've built something. It's like this, you know, you know, masterpiece you've made and you just have to start cutting it in half. And so uh, I come teaching, teaching you out of a state of depression, of sadness, for cutting all of my fun stuff out of this teaching. But uh, I pray it'll still be edifying. <laughs> uh, before, before we talk about God's presence, we have to actually talk about what I mean by that when I say God's presence. Um, because God is spirit, right? And he's everywhere, all the time, equally. You know, he's never more in one place than in another. Otherwise, he wouldn't be omnipresent, right? Because if he's more here and less over there, well, then there's an absence of his presence there that doesn't exist here, right? So God is omnipresent. He's everywhere equally. But we're not talking about his omnipresence today. We're talking about his, what's called his special presence or his manifest presence or his relational presence. And so let me explain what I'm talking about. Uh, when you were an unbeliever, okay, when you were not a Christian, you dwelled in God's omnipresence, Right? Because he's everywhere. You can't escape the presence of God. But then you became a Christian, which means that God's spirit now dwells within you. Okay, that's the biblical language. God's presence has specifically taken up residence in you. And what on earth does that mean? If he was already everywhere prior to you becoming a Christian. You know, what changed about his presence when you became a Christian? And I'll tell you, God's presence didn't change. Right? God doesn't change. Instead, here's what changed. Your relationship to his presence changed. Right? Your relationship to his presence changed. You now relate to God and his presence in a way that you didn't before. Yes, before you still experienced the blessing of God's presence. For example, unbelievers' lives are still sustained by God's presence. All humans are held together by God's presence presence and everyone experiences joy and laughter and beauty simply because we all exist in God's omnipresence, but the unbeliever will also experience the, the wrath of God's presence. And unbelievers will experience the eternal uh, wrath of, of his presence. So for the unbeliever, the way God's presence manifests in their life is different than the Christian. Because ultimately for the unbeliever, God's presence is destructive. Okay, God's presence is Destructive, But for the Christian, God's presence manifests itself differently because we have a different relationship to God. And therefore, our experience in his presence is different as well. So our eternal future in God's presence isn't one of destruction, but instead of eternal life, right? And eternal joy and eternal satisfaction. God's presence manifests in the Christian's life. It doesn't look like wrath. Instead, God's presence produces things like the fruit of the Spirit, humility, and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness uh, or gentleness, and self-control, and eternal satisfaction and joy. And so in other words, God's presence corresponds to his relationship to the person in his presence. That's the point I'm making here. For, for those with a good relationship with God, his manifest presence is terrifying. For those with a, a good relationship, his manifest presence is, is a special and gracious Blessing, But for those with a bad relationship with God, his manifest presence is terrifying and destructive. And so today, it's this special, manifest, relational presence of God that we'll be focusing on. How as we walk through the narrative of Scripture, we're going to see that God graciously gives the gift of his presence, giving life to his people. But so long as we're ruined by our sin, we cannot live in his presence because we're unholy. His presence is it's dangerous to us. It threatens to destroy us. But rather than destroy us, God sends his son. He destroys Jesus, covers Jesus with our unholiness so that we might be made 
spotless. God reconciles us, repairs our relationship to him so that we can dwell with him and he with us forever in his glorious presence. And so our outline today uh, for the class, uh, we're going to walk through five points. Um, Beginning with number one, that mankind was made to dwell in and spread the presence of God. Number two, that we rejected and disqualified ourselves from his presence. Number three, God provides mediators of his presence. We're going to walk through a lot of scripture there. Number four, that Jesus is the ultimate mediator of the presence of God. And finally, that God will fill the whole earth with his presence. That is our eternal hope. Okay, so we've got a lot to cover. Let's get a move on. Uh, beginning with number one. Mankind was made to dwell in and spread the presence of God. So Genesis 1, 1 through 2 says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, so God's presence, his spirit was there hovering over the face of the waters. And what happens whenever God manifests his presence in this special way over, you know, this dark abyss of nothingness? Creation. Right? Beauty and glory and life, a beautiful living creation springs up in God's presence. And that's what it looks like to be in this special presence of God, flourishing and life abounds. And so he creates the earth and the heavens and you know, the birds and the fish and the beasts of the field and the flowers. And then in Genesis 2, he creates this garden. And this garden is in this place called Eden, which is this Hebrew word for delight. All right? We're meant to see this as a particularly delightful and beautiful and holy place. And it's, it's sort of set apart from the rest of creation. Okay? It's this lush mountaintop. Right? It's this elevated place. That's how the rivers all flow from it. And they flow down onto the plains. It's closer to the heavenly realm. And so it's this special place within creation that is particularly holy. And in this garden, God places the crown of his creation Mankind. Okay, now let's talk about mankind. We've read this verse probably every week of this semester, but look at Genesis 1, 26 through 27. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Pay attention to those two words. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Now, when we read this, we don't really catch a lot of what's being communicated here, mainly because we get tripped up by this idea of being created in God's image, being made in the likeness of God. Because when we, when we try to consider what that means, typically we think, okay, so God made us you know, look like him, like his image. But wait, God's a spirit, and so he doesn't have an image, so what does this mean? How on, how on earth do we represent? How are we made in his likeness? What does that actually mean? This passage just tends to confuse us. And that's because there's a reference here that we, you know, Americans, Texans, uh, and in many industrialized countries in the world, we just don't catch this reference. We don't catch the reference. And here's the reference. When the Bible says that God made us in his own image and in his likeness, that's actually a reference to idol worship. To idolatry. It's a, it's a reference to idol worship, okay? To pagan temples, to the little images and statues of gods that lived in the temples of Egypt and Babylon and all of these countries that Israel's warring with. These things that were made in the likeness of the God of the sun or the God of the harvest or whatever. And so, for example, look at the first two of the Ten Commandments given to Israel after they were delivered from Egypt. Exodus 20. Uh, verse 3 through 5a, God says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so the, the statues that occupied the temples in Egypt, they were carved and formed in the image and in the likeness of the Egyptian gods. 
Okay, and, and God says, hey, you will not do that. That will not happen. You will not make for yourselves anything in the image or the likeness of a God. Why? Because I am the Lord your God and I've already got an image. I've already made an image. Mankind was made in the image of God after God's likeness. We're that little statue living in the temple. And as you read the creation account in Genesis, that's the reference we just don't catch. That Genesis is actually describing God's creation like a temple. Creation, the heavens, the earth, and Eden specifically, it's this place of worship where you can taste and see and experience God's presence and the flourishing that his presence gives. It's a temple of his presence. And it's a temple that God created mankind to dwell in. So mankind was created to dwell in his presence. But not only that, we see God gives mankind a job. Genesis 1, 28 says, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So mankind was made to not only dwell in the presence of God, but also to spread the presence of God across the earth, okay? To fill the earth with his presence by obeying his word and going out from Eden and expanding the garden out from there. So mankind subduing the earth and exercising dominion and working and keeping the garden and literally obeying God's command, God's word, that's gonna have an effect on the earth because the earth is beautiful when mankind obeys the word of God and subdues and exercises dominion. And so an earth that is beautiful and flourishing and that flourishing and beauty is spreading, that demonstrates what? That God's presence is spreading and filling this place. That's why it would look so beautiful. And so, those, so mankind is commanded to expand the beauty of the garden and expand the beauty of God's image out from Eden until the whole earth is filled with this special presence of God. Until the whole earth really is this flourishing Garden. That's the creation mandate. The, this beautiful temple dedicated to the life-giving presence of God. And so see that, that we as God's image bearers, number one, we were made to dwell in and spread the presence of God. But then what do we do instead? Number two, we rejected and disqualified ourselves from his presence. Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so mankind is meant to work and keep the garden, dwelling in and spreading God's presence. And to fuel this work, we see God provides every tree in the garden, okay? So through the lens of this theme of God's presence, we see that mankind has everything they need when they dwell in the presence of God, right? They lack nothing. They, they know what they need to do. They have God's word, and God gives everything they need to do it. He, he supplies them. He provides for them. But there's also something that's in the garden that they don't need. It's there, but it's not for them to have, and that's this, the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so let me ask you this. How did Adam and Eve know what is good and evil here in Genesis? Pre-fall, how do they know what's good and what's evil? And I'll answer the question that I asked. God's word. God's word is the authority of what is good and what is evil. God speaks and commands them to cultivate a garden and when they obey God, they're doing what is good, right? And they have life. And to disobey God is to do evil. And they know that if they, if they obey, they will have life and they'll be eating from the tree of life. But if they disobey, they shall surely die. And so they already have a knowledge of good and evil, but it all depends on God's word, right? Their knowledge relies on dwelling in God's presence and submitting themselves to his word rather than dwelling wherever they want and discerning for themselves what is good and what is evil. So in other words, living in God's presence is not a life of independence. It's a life of total dependence on God, on his word, and his 
provision. And that dependence is what humanity rejected in the garden. Genesis 3, 4 through 7. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the serpent promised that they would gain something when they ate the fruit. And that's actually true. They did actually gain a a knowledge that they didn't have before, but it wasn't the wisdom that they were hoping for. Instead, it was an experiential knowledge, really of shame. Their eyes were indeed opened, but not to a greater discernment or anything like that, but rather they learned what it felt like to be evil, something they have no knowledge of before. They learned what it felt like to disobey God's word. And the shame that comes from knowing you're no longer qualified to live in God's presence. The Old Testament word for this is unclean. They, they learned what it felt like to be unclean. We're going to see that word a lot today. And they made themselves in this act unclean in the presence of God. And here's why that's a huge problem for humanity. God is goodness. You know, God isn't good because he has a lot of good stuff about him. He is actually the definition of Goodness. There's only one who is good, and he is God. And because God is good, and because God is also just, like we talked about last week, he cannot allow that which is evil to dwell with him. Right? If evil or that which is unclean can dwell happily with him with no sort of consequence or no sort of strange conflict, then he's actually not good. Right? And if he doesn't punish sin, he's not just Either And so if you're evil and if you're unclean and you find yourself in the presence of God, things are not going to go well for you. And so Adam and Eve's eyes are opened uh, to this reality. And so Genesis 3 says, they heard the sound, 3.8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They sew fig leaves together, you know, to hide their shame, to hide, and they try to hide in the trees. And the presence of God now, you know, see how their relationship to his presence has changed, like we talked about earlier. His presence is now something to be afraid of. It's terrifying. It's a destructive presence. For God's perfect creation, his presence is life-giving. It's a joy. Dwelling in God's presence is flourishing for that which is good. But for the evildoer and for the unclean, God's presence brings death and destruction, so they try to hide from his presence. But God actually, actually in this moment, does a really gracious thing. He, he casts them out of the garden. He casts them out of his presence so they won't be destroyed. That's a merciful act. We tend to see that as him kicking out, like, you know, kick someone out of your house. I'm done with you. What he's doing is something incredibly merciful so that they're not obliterated by his holiness, by his righteousness. Because if you try to enter God's presence unclean, you die. You will surely die. That's the state of humanity post-Genesis 3. We cannot dwell in or enter God's presence or even get too close lest we die. And that is where the story of humanity could have ended, you know. God's special life-giving presence, you know, over there and our disqualified uncleanness over here. You know, death if we stay over here, death if we attempt to go over there. But as we continue reading our Bibles, we see not only a God who is good and a God who is just and a God who is holy, we meet a God who is merciful. God is a merciful God, and we're going to see him mercifully provide humanity with access to his presence, creating for us these little Edens, these, these places where God and man meet and his presence is mediated to us. This brings us to number three, that God provides mediators of his presence. <clears throat> a mediator is like a, is like a bridge 
uh, right of, between two opposing parties, right? A mediator provides resolution, provides reconciliation of sorts. And we tend to hear this word and we think of some sort of legal dispute, you know, maybe in the case of a divorce where people are meeting in the middle to come to an agreement about how to divide property or custody or children or whatever. But that's not the mediation we're talking about uh, between God and humanity. Because sinful humanity and God are not equal parties coming to the table to try to work out an agreement with one another. This is really important, so don't miss this. God is holy, and his presence dwells wherever he chooses. But the problem for us is if he just so happens to choose to have his presence dwell where we dwell, we'll all die. We'll all be destroyed. Right, because God is holy. The uncleanness gets obliterated in the holiness or chopped up with a flaming sword like the cherubim that stands out guarding Eden. And so we can't go to God and try to do some mediation or to be reconciled because if we have any hope of dwelling in the presence of God, God is going to have to come to us. We can't go to him. We will die. So he has to come to us and be the one to invite us and provide that mediation and that reconciliation. And so God has to provide mediators of his presence. He doesn't have to, but if there's any hope of us dwelling with God, he must. Certainly can't come from us. As we read through the Old Testament, that's exactly what he does. God meets, for example, with Moses in a burning bush. God dwells with his people in the tabernacle as they wander through the wilderness. And God dwells in the city of Jerusalem with his people in the temple. These are all these mediators of God's presence. And here's what I want, to know, I want us to just notice that all of these have in common. They all, all these mediators, point people back to Eden. They all point people back to the garden. They call people to depend on God alone for their cleansing. They call people to obedience to God, to obey his word, follow his commands, walk in his statutes. And they give people a hope for the future. Okay, that's what we're going to see. All these mediators do those four things. So let's consider a few of these mediators of God's presence. Obviously, this list isn't exhaustive. I had so much cool stuff that you would have been like, oh, it's the coolest thing I've ever heard, best teaching ever. I'll only follow Tim from now on. I had that in my teaching, and I had to cut it all out. So mediocrity abounds. Uh... Yeah, I wish we had more time. Anyways, I'm skipping stuff even now. Let's start with the burning bush, okay? (laughs) Uh, The burning bush. I'm just going to read this long passage here, and then we'll talk about it, okay? I know it's pretty hefty, but we'll read through it, and then we'll kind of pick out some things from the passage. Exodus 3, 1 through 12. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll I'll turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. He's like, that's pretty weird. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And God said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? This is amazing. God said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So that's a lot, right? Uh, But first, uh, so we just want to walk through these points. In what way does this uh, 
exchange point Moses or the people of Israel back to Eden. And so first off, so this is what biblical themes is all about. You have these themes and you're looking for them in, in the passage. First off, notice that Moses is on a mountain, right? It's an elevated place above the rest of the earth, like Eden was. It's an elevated place near the heavenly realm, you know? And so a mountain was seen as something closer to the heavens. And so it's a fitting location for Moses to find himself in the presence of God. And additionally, look at this lush land that God describes he's going to provide for his people. He promises to bring them into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, so in the same way that God put mankind in a lush and flourishing garden, he's promising to put Israel in a lush and flourishing land. It's a paradise. We're meant to see that connection to Eden. And one more thing, notice the call to to spread out, right? Not only to dwell in the presence of God in this Eden-like place, but to spread the presence of God outward. God's calling his people to outward expansion, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, per se, as his presence goes with them. Because he says, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out uh, of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of... Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So there's this expansion, this expansion from Egypt and outward from there. And so God's presence is this, in this burning bush, it has these Edenic uh, undertones. We're reminded of Eden, that dwelling in the presence of God is a life of flourishing. One that we at one time lost, but it seems God is working on our behalf to provide once again. But obviously there's a reason we're not in the garden anymore, and that's sin. You know, we've disqualified ourselves from his presence. We can't go near his presence without consequences. And so in verses five through six, we see that it's it's not Moses' holiness that grants him entrance into the presence of God. Rather, God's mercy alone can grant him entrance. And Moses is completely dependent on God for cleansing. See, it says... God said, do not come near, okay? Don't do it. Take your sandals off your feet. The place on which you're standing is holy ground. We see that Moses, had, he hides his face. He's afraid to look at God. And this is all because Moses is unclean. He's unclean. That's why he's afraid. He's a sinful human. He has to keep his distance, lest he be consumed by the fire. Again, sounds a lot like Eden. And what God does graciously is he gives Moses these To us, they seem like kind of silly, uh, I don't know the right word, but it seems like these regulations, why does taking your shoes off make you okay in front of God? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. But what God does graciously is he gives Moses these regulations for his, so that Moses is not consumed, right? He says, don't come any closer. Take your shoes off so that you won't be consumed, and this is pretty, a pretty good summary of the law in the Old Testament. The point of the law is not to earn your way into God's favor. That's a, that's a misunderstanding that we have, uh, especially in evangelicalism. Rather, like Moses, the regulations that God gives in his law are merciful protections. God's way of providing cleansing so that the people of Israel could dwell in his presence without being utterly destroyed in their sins. Because cleanness and uncleanness can't dwell together. So in this simple act of taking his shoes off and keeping his distance, we see Moses entrusts his life to God's mercy. He's, He's standing in the presence of God. That could mean surely death. And he depends on God to deal with his uncleanness. But then we also see a call to obedience. Okay, so obviously God is commanding Moses to do the things that he's telling him to do. God's giving his word, and the means by which God's people will be delivered is Moses' obedience. You know, God's saying, listen to these words, obey these words, and deliver my people. If you don't, they're just going to stay in Egypt. But the emphasis is that God is giving his word, and therefore Moses ought to listen to it and obey it. Or another way to look at it is that the people of Israel are already living in a pretty terrible existence, enslaved. And so God shows them a path to deliverance, which they can walk toward blessing, or they can reject and continue in their 
affliction. Again, it sounds like Eden. There's this choice before them. And then finally, there's this, this hope for the future given through this mediator of God's presence. And that really has to do with this outward expansion from Egypt. The outward expansion is not simply about defeating people, you know, and being the top dog in the region. You know, that's not Israel's hope. It's actually about reclaiming what was lost. God is promising that his people will once again dwell in a land that they used to dwell in and instead were cast out from. These are lands that once belonged to the children of Abraham and were promised to the children of Abraham. But the people have been enslaved and they've been cast out of those lands. And so God's promising to deliver them. Well, obviously this promise is about more than land. It's about this future dwelling place, this Eden-like dwelling place where God's presence overflows and flourishing like milk and honey. There's this God remedying our longing to to return to a place that his people were kicked out of. And sure, that means the land of the Amorites or whoever, but how much better that it points to the land of Eden as well. That's what we're meant to see in this passage is that God's people are not in the place that they were made to dwell. And God promises to make that happen graciously. And so... I just want to pause and notice the grace of God towards his people. Though we've rebelled, though they've rebelled, though Moses has rebelled, he's a murderer, Moses, right? Though we've rejected him, Israel is suffering the consequences of their own sin in Egypt, and yet how does God respond to sinners? He draws near. God comes down. He invites people into his presence. He provides a way, a means for them to dwell in his presence. He covenants with them, provides a remedy so that they aren't destroyed in their uncleanness. And as a result, they experience life-giving beauty and the grace of his presence. So that's the burning bush. Let's look at the tabernacle. So following the Exodus, uh, once the people of Israel had left Egypt, they're journeying through the wilderness. God's faithful to his promise. He literally goes with them. You know, he's providing for them. He's leading them. His presence is literally leading them as a pillar of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire by night. But even so, just like Adam and Eve, they explicitly reject God. They reject him, right? If you remember that story, they gathered up all of their gold jewelry. They melted it down. They used that to make a golden statue of a cow. They said, behold, you know, this is our God who delivered us from Egypt, right? It's a crazy story. And so if anyone is disqualified to be in God's presence, it's these guys, it's Israel. And yet God provides a mediator of his presence in the tabernacle, even in the midst of their idolatry. It's like a couple verses after the golden calf. He starts talking about building a sanctuary so that he can dwell with his people. That's the exact reason he gives. Look at Exodus 25, 1 through 2, and it's also verses 8 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take, me for, take for me a contribution and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Again, why does the furniture matter? You know, why does taking off the shoes matter? I don't know, but that's how God graciously provides for his people. You don't get much more explicit than that. God tells them to gather materials to build a sanctuary so that he can dwell with them. And so already, you can see how this might remind us of Eden, you know, God dwelling with mankind in their midst in this temple, in this tabernacle, in this sanctuary of his creation. We see this mediator of God's presence points people back to Eden. Look at Exodus 26, 31 and verse 33b. God says, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim, just like the dude that's standing out of Eden flaming sword, swinging it back and forth so no one can enter. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. So there's this veil in the tabernacle with pictures of cherubim on them, uh, on the veil, that prevents anyone from entering 
the most holy place where God's presence rests on the Ark of the Covenant, okay? It separates that most holy place from the holy place. That certainly sounds like Eden. You see this Edenic imagery there. It's a reminder also of their sin and their uncleanness, a reminder of the distance between mankind and God, which obviously calls people to look to God, depend on God for their cleansing. Only the chief priest can enter that most holy place, the Holy of Holies, to meet with God in his presence. And this comes once a year. Does anyone know what day it comes? On the day of? Perfect. Atonement. <laughs> no one said it. <laughs> uh, on the day of atonement. That is the, the once a year, one day out of every year, the camp of Israel was ritually cleansed of sin. Because again, uncleanness and holiness cannot coexist. And so Leviticus 16, 16 says, thus uh, he, the chief priest, shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. He shall do for the tent of meeting, which is just describing the tabernacle, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. And so basically something has to be done about their uncleanness. If God is going to continue to dwell in their midst. And evidently what has to be done is a lot of blood being spilled, right? A ton of blood. God gives regulations. They involve slaughtering animals, sprinkling their blood over here and over there and on the people, which is gross, and all over the place. And specifically on the Day of Atonement, there are these two goats, right? We know one's killed and offered up as a sacrifice for the sin of the people. And the other is led out into the wilderness and God says that on that goat, the people can place all their sins, all their transgressions. You know, the poor goat. He's just a goat, you know, goating around like goats do. He hasn't done anything wrong, but God tells the people that their sin can be forgiven by placing it on this scapegoat. That's where we get that term, on the scapegoat. Leviticus 16, 30 and verse 34, God says, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. And so very clearly, living in God's presence demands dependence on God for your cleansing. Okay? And the tabernacle also calls people to obedience. Exodus 34, 10 through 12. Uh, God said, Behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. There's new creation language there. That's fun. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. And so notice God gives his word, and he makes it pretty explicit. And even better, he gives a covenantal promise. What he says is, observe what I command you this day, observe my word, and things will go well for you. Otherwise, if you don't observe it, you make covenants with other you know, nations among you instead of this covenant, upholding this covenant with me and observing what I've commanded you, things will not go well for you. But observe my word. Observe what I've commanded you so that you might flourish in my presence. And finally, the tabernacle gives people hope for the future. Leviticus 26, verses 3 through 12 God says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. The land shall yield its increase. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I'll remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies. They shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, 
and a hundred of you shall chase 10,000 and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my, my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Man, this text is, there is so much stuff going on. If you just slow down and see, you hear this creation language from Genesis. It sounds like Eden all over again, where the people are fruitful and multiplying. God walks among them and there's, there's peace. God promises a sort of future will be given to those who walk in his statutes and observe and do his commands. And it points to this incredible future as they find themselves living in the wilderness. And it points to, I mean, if this was like a biblical themes thing on like communion or, you know, he even talks about them having a good grape harvest and and God blessing their bread and eating good bread. The grape harvest is only for making wine having wine and bread. I mean, there's so much provision in here and so much future looking. This has, this has eternity, but also, like everything we're talking today, has Christ in mind. And so God's presence gives hope for a, a future. Even as his people continue to reject him and disqualify themselves from this future, he continues to cleanse them and gives them hope. And then finally, the temple and we're just going to briefly look at the temple because I'm going to spend a lot less time on the temple because it's basically a permanent tabernacle, you know? So things I've already mentioned would get a little redundant. Uh, but the tabernacle and the temple, they're basically the same thing. It's just that the tabernacle was portable and temporary until Israel was able to enter the promised land. And the temple in Jerusalem was a more permanent construction until it was destroyed and then it was destroyed again. And so... The temple pointed people back to Eden. Obviously, if you read descriptions of the temple in the Old Testament, covered in depictions of trees and nature, all covered in gold. I mean, in the, like in the Holy of Holies, what you have is the, the law, you know, the, uh, you know, the knowledge of good and evil. It's there sitting next to a lampstand that's in the shape of an almond tree. So you have this tree of life and this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but it's a good thing. Anyways, there's so many things I'm not talking about. There's so much symbolism, it's crazy. It points people back to Eden. When they see the temple, they see this beauty of God's presence dwelling with them that points them back to Eden. And also, the temple calls people to depend on God for cleansing. You know, the same Levitical sacrifices and then some that were prescribed by the Mosaic law that govern the tabernacle are practiced in the temple as well. The temple is a bloody, bloody place. Right? And it's a place of sacrifice. And life in Jerusalem was basically centered around the temple, around these, around these constant ceremonies and feasts and acts and, and days of observance, remembering we need God to cleanse us if he's going to keep living here. Otherwise, we're going to be obliterated. And again, the, the point was not about earning God's favor, favor, but rather by faith, trusting God to look on the practice of, and for example, slaughtering a bull as this temporary substitute of cleansing to remedy their uncleanness. And so the temple points back to Eden, calls people to depend on God for cleansing, also calls people to obedience. Solomon, who uh, oversaw the construction of the temple, when he dedicated it, uh, he gives this long poetic speech about the grace of God and calls the people to worship God in his temple and to be careful to obey what God has commanded. We see this in 1 Kings 8, verses 56 through 61. And I'd encourage you, if you want to really do a deep dive, read this whole dedication speech. It's, it's actually beautiful. Uh, verse 56, he says, Solomon says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all of his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. 
that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes, keeping his commandments, as at this day. And so in God's presence in the temple, you see this emphasis, there's this value placed on God's word. God's word is lifted high. And there's this emphasis on walking in the way that he has commanded. That is where flourishing happens in the presence of God. And then finally, uh, in God's presence in the temple, he gives people hope for the future. God gives people hope for the future. But here's what's unique. Israel had believed that the tabernacle, it looked forward to the day of the temple, right? All the promises about this land flowing with milk and honey and God's presence dwelling with them in the city. Israel saw that being the city of Jerusalem. But now that the temple was built and Israel was finally there, living in this great city, dwelling with their God, they found themselves, by their own fault, by their own sin, constantly at war, worshiping other gods, defiling themselves in God's presence, being taken into captivity by, by other nations, and eventually the Babylonians destroy the temple. And then it seems like in the, in the narrative of, uh, of the biblical narrative in that history, well, it was a big waste of hope. That's how it feels. But then the prophets, prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah, they, they don't look at the temple. One day I'll get that right, Isaiah. Isaiah. Uh, they don't look at the temple in Jerusalem as the fulfillment of God's promises to the people of Israel. Ezekiel's actually going to say, he says, that's not the land flowing with milk and honey. That wasn't the thing that we were hoping for. Instead, the prophets point to a greater house of God and a greater city of God. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant, it, it loses its importance and the presence of God will no longer be limited to the Holy of Holies, but rather will go out from the temple. And the presence of God won't only dwell with Israel, but the nations will gather to worship God. And God's presence will be with his people forever. <clears throat> and this is all, the prophets are all waiting for this to happen when a great king named David, in the line of David, not actual David, but this messianic king, a king just like King David was going to come and he was going to sit on the throne. And when that king came and sat on the throne, then Ezekiel says in uh, chapter 37, 24 through 28. My servant David shall be king over them. They shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. Okay, that's the, the cleansing, the, you know, being clean and unclean. God says, I'll, I'll remove that. We'll just have a covenant of peace. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I'll set them in their land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. And then Jeremiah 3, 15 through 17. This is bold language coming from Jeremiah. It says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart, it's talking to Israel, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, it's getting a little redundant, right? We keep hearing all this Edenic language. When you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or even missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. Not the Ark of the Covenant anymore. Jerusalem, the whole city. And all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. So, so this, all this is crazy. This is pointing to this greater temple, this, the brick and mortar one and the Ark of the Covenant within it. One day they won't even be missed. People won't even, it'll have a hard time remembering it. What was the point of that? Do we even need that? That's what Jeremiah is saying. They'll be forgotten in view of a greater temple, the ultimate mediator of God's presence, who is, spoiler alert, Jesus. Number four, Jesus is the ultimate mediator of the presence of God. John 1, 14 says, And the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the presence of God that comes to dwell among us. Jesus is the greater temple and even said it as much to the Pharisees in John 2, 19 through 22. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is this ultimate mediator of God's presence. That's why he's called Emmanuel. He's called God with us. And he points people back to Eden, right? He, he calls his people to repentance. He calls his people to look to God for their cleansing. He calls people to obedience of God's word, and he gives people a hope for the future. Let me look at that quickly. First, he points back to Eden. There's a bunch we could say here. Obviously, where we've been reading in Matthew, particularly lately, he's healing all these diseases. He's reversing the effects of our sin. Healing disease, bringing unity. All, he, that's, what, that's his point. He's not just doing magic tricks. He's, he's demonstrating that he is the great mediator of God's presence. When God's presence is among you, there's no more chaos and sin and darkness and, and sickness but rather there's healing, there's refreshment, there's flourishing. And then we even see in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we see this new creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and to expand, not only dwell in God's presence by having the Spirit indwell us, but to take that presence outward. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Okay, make disciples of all nations, taking this new created man, creation mandate to dwell in his presence by the power of the Spirit and take it outward to all nations. Jesus also calls people to depend on God for their cleansing Right, uh, Acts 4, 11 through 12, Peter says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which, by which we must be saved. Okay, so Jesus calls people to depend on him, can on God's provision, on God's Messiah for their Cleansing, as Isaiah 53 talks about, this one who would bear our iniquities, the, the true scapegoat that Jesus is, this mediator of God's presence. And then finally, he calls people to obedience. Uh, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, obviously, as he, as he speaks all of these commands, you've heard it said, but I tell you, obey, walk in the way I've commanded. We see that reiterated in the Great Commission when he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus' commands are God's word, and it is his word that is the law of our life that we submit to and we joyously do, for in the day that we do that, we find flourishing. And finally, Jesus gives people hope for the future. Jesus says that he'll be with us to the end of the age. Lo, I am with you into the end of the age, whoever low is. And he promises everlasting life. Promises to give everlasting life. I love John 11, 25 through 27. Uh, when he's speaking to Mary, said, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world to dwell, is her assumption. And so Jesus is the ultimate mediator of the presence of God, and he gives us hope of an eternal future, which brings us to our final section. The scriptures show us that God will ultimately fill the whole earth with his presence. Jesus promises to finish the work man was given in the garden, to fill the earth with the presence of God, to dwell in and fill the earth with God's presence, where he establishes a new city where mankind can dwell 
in God's presence forever. Revelation 21, 1 through 8 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Oh yeah, by the way, don't read this like it's saying, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and then I saw something else. When he starts talking about a new city, Jerusalem, coming down, he's talking about what the new heaven and new earth look like. And he calls it Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God, where the throne of God is in the city of Jerusalem. He starts describing the city. It's, it's square. It's a cube, like the Holy of Holies. So don't separate those. As you read through Revelation, he'll always uh, read through the book of Revelation. There's always this great statement of what's happening and then details about what's happening. When he says, I saw you know, a new heaven and a new earth, first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And then he starts talking about what that looks like. He's not talking about something different here. So this new Jerusalem coming down, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Just like Ezekiel said, one, time, one day those former things, we're not even gonna remember them. We're gonna forget about them because we'll be in the presence of a greater mediator of a new age where, the, where God dwells with his people. You see this new creation is, is pointing back to Eden there's also a call to depend on God for cleansing, to depend on Christ. And there's this, it says, nothing unclean will ever enter this city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, only those who are redeemed by the Messiah, by Jesus. There's also this call to people, for people to obey, call to <clears throat> obedience. It looks like, Amplifying the word of God, showing that the word of God is what reigns forever. Only, only God and only Jesus and his word, which he says, uh, which he speaks throughout Revelation. There's this, there's this emphasis given to the word of God being spoken and everyone rejoicing at the hearing of the word of God and obeying it. And it says there in verse 8, Revelation 21, 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters... And all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So this is call to obedience to God's word. And like I said in the beginning, we were created to dwell in the presence of God. It's our created purpose. And we'll never be satisfied until we are living as we were created to live in the presence of God. And our hope is that God graciously provides his presence. He provided his people a garden of his presence in the beginning. We rejected that. Provided a burning bush. Rejected that. Provided a tabernacle. We rejected that. A temple. We rejected that. But these all pointed to our ultimate mediator of God's presence, Jesus, our Lord. Don't reject Jesus. Today, he provides us with his presence by his Holy Spirit indwelling us, who dwells in and among us. I wish I had more time to just talk about that and the church but one day he'll provide a dwelling place for us to live eternally in his presence. And that's our eternal hope that comforts us today. So I'll, I'll pray. Is, there any, is it worth it or just dismiss? Dismiss. Sorry. I hate when we don't take questions. Uh, consider this my repentance to you, that I need God's cleansing. Uh, <laughs> let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for the gift of Jesus. Uh, thank you that you have a, 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 a the scriptures are uh, it's unfathomable the amount of time that we could infinite we'll never dive to the bottom of them and yet there's even more in eternity so we thank you for the hope um, we thank you for the gift of, of your gospel that you redeem sinners pray that we would boast in our sinfulness uh, so that in so doing we would be boasting uh, in your magnificent mercy. Uh, apart from you, we can do nothing. So we confess that we need you. 
Um, Teach us to treasure your presence. I pray that this place would be uh, a place of your presence where we point to uh, Eden, where we, uh, where we rejoice in the cleansing that only Christ provides, that we lift up God's word and that we submit to it. We're not just hearers of the word, doers of the word, and that we are a hopeful people, not a downcast, bitter people. Uh, as we look forward uh, to uh, what you provide for us today and what you have promised tomorrow. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.